Welcome back to the Early Way In podcast. If you're joining us, make sure to like the video and throw a subscribe to the channel so we can grow some more and put out some more content for you guys. Last week was not the week we were hoping for in terms of betting. Our night was ruined big time by the massive upset Derek Lewis had on Curtis Blades. But we are right back to it this week, man, with our third heavyweight main event in four weeks. UFC is sort of spoiling us. This is UFC Vegas 20 and a headline by top contenders in Jair Zeno Rosenstroik versus Cyril Gaon. Anything you want to add before we jump in? Yeah, far from the start that we wanted to this year, but you know, not to make too many excuses, underdogs are hitting at 40% this year, and that was the biggest main event upset since Rockhold Bisbing. I really do feel like if we stick to our guts, we're, uh, we're going to get back on track. It's just a matter of time. Once again, our challenge got uh, – Canceled, canceled both of them. Yeah, both of them. We tried to do Pena and close. Uh, close, and then there was another one on that fight too, trying to make up for the previous week's cancellation. And it's catch a break. Still didn't work. So this week we're going to do Minifield versus Knight, which we kind of feel is a, a coin flip and a really fun one to have a challenge on for sure. For sure, man. Uh, we're not going to waste any time though. Let's get right into it. We start off in the light heavyweight division with Dustin Jacoby, who's 13 and five, taking on Maxim Grishin, who's 31, eight and two. Dustin Jacoby, he looked good in his return to the octagon against Justin Ledet. Uh, really utilized some leg kicks and uh, really just outclassed him on the feet and ended up getting the finish. You know, since taking his hiatus to do his kickboxing career, he's returned to the octagon and faced three different fighters from really three different weight classes. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw Cody East, who is a heavyweight, and Dustin Jacoby looked really well in that fight, but it's not a heavyweight that's anywhere close to UFC caliber, in my opinion. Although I'm pretty sure Cody East was in the UFC Mm -hmm. at one point. Obviously, it didn't work out, and that's why he's sitting on the regional (laughs) scene. Uh, Ty Flores, I'm pretty sure he's like a a buffed-up welterweight, uh, a 170-pounder, and Dustin Jacoby... Again, you know, had some issues in that fight. There were some times where Flores had some had some success and uh, it kind of worried me for Dustin Jacoby, especially in his fight with Ledet. I ended up fading him and really paying the price for mm-hmm. it. Ledet uh, tried striking with the kickboxer and Jacoby and really just got outclassed. You know, one thing that does work for Jacoby is he is athletic for the division and extremely fast. And that's definitely the best thing he has going for him. Where Grisham, you know, in his last time out, he was able to get that win over Antigulov, but it wasn't in like super impressive fashion. Yeah. I, I know me and you both thought that he was going to get it done a little bit quicker and a little bit, uh, a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, Antigulov actually got a couple of takedowns, which was surprising. But in Grisham, in his head, in his debut, he debuted at heavyweight against uh, Tybura, and and he looked decent. You know, uh, being at six three with a seventy eight inch reach, he didn't look outsized at all, and uh, it was somewhat impressive. the The biggest thing that I think Grisham has working for him going into this fight is MMA experience. You know, he has over forty fights in MMA, and Dustin Jacoby really hasn't fared well against the upper echelon of MMA talent. So I, I could see him running into some problems. And Grisham is actually one of my uh underdog plays of the night absolutely man I, I texted you earlier in the week and told you that here was your spot to fade dustin jacoby again a guy that you know you see is a bit one-dimensional and, and will lose once he faces those upper fighters in the division um maxing grecian is is definitely on another level with ty flores and justin ledette and will definitely mix up his game you know way more than those two will you spoke on um you know this now being i think his second stint in the ufc he did go oh and two previously in the ufc back in 2011 when he was 22 years old. So, you know, you do have to cut the guy a little bit of, a little bit of slack. And 
since leaving, kind of mixed it up between MMA, kickboxing, and fought a relatively tough competition on the kickboxing scene, doing multiple fight night tournaments, which is something I like to, you know, I like to see guys get in there and take on multiple guys in the same night. But that kickboxing experience has really sharpened his hands. Um, he th- showed a great calf kick in that Justin Ledette fight. But in the Ty Flores fight, that grappling and those exchanges really, you know, took a toll on his cardio. Mm-hmm. But I can almost say the same in the Grecian fight because his cardio really didn't look that well in that Antigua fight. And those grappling exchanges kind of sorted to slow him down a little bit as well. Checking his Instagram, though, Grecian's been in the gym there at, um, who is it, Couture, Extreme Couture with uh, guys like Spivak and Francis and stuff. So mm-hmm. I know he's putting in the work there. Um, that Antigua fight is something I keep coming back to because I think it was supposed to be like a thank you layup for taking your heavyweight debut, you know, against Tibera ranked heavyweight. And like you said, you know, he still got the finish, but it was a little lackluster performance. He kind of seemed like a deer in the headlights, hoping Antigua was just going to rush forward so we could counter. Um, man, he's not really going to have that problem here because Justin DeColby has a ton of volume and Maxim Grishin is going to have a ton of opportunities to counter here. He has a dangerous right hand, good feints, but the MMA experience and his ability to mix this game up is really going to, you know, give Dustin something else to think about that he's not had to as of late. Grishin is one of the more popular dogs that I've seen this week, um, and I don't mind the bet here. It's probably one that I'm going to sit back and completely pass on myself, but uh, I'm going to lean toward Dustin Jacoby. I think he's a more crisp striker, and um, if this does stay on the feet, I lean toward Dustin Jacoby to get it done. Yeah, so uh, I could definitely see paths to victory for both guys. But if I do play this Grishin line, it'll be Grishin by decision sitting at plus 400 right now. I really do think that he's just going to be able to grind up against him, similarly to how Tibura was able Mm -hmm. to do against him in his debut. I completely agree. I think that's uh, Grishin's way to victory for this fight, too. Our next fight, we move to the Bantamweight division, and Ronnie the Heat Lawrence, who's 6-1, and taking on Vince Koshera, who is 7-3. Another Tennessee boy fighting on mm-hmm. Saturday night. You know, this is a UFC debut for Ronnie Lawrence, who got his, you know, uh, contract there on Contender Series, where he was outmatched severely in height and reach, I think four or five inches, and he came into that as a plus 260 dog. Um, and he left that night with Dana White saying that he's special, you know, and that he has a lot of things that he can offer to the UFC. For this camp, he's made his move to Sanford MMA, which is a gym that's just been killing it as of late. One thing I do like about Ronnie Lawrence is the pace and pressure that he puts on these guys. He brings, um, you know, great cardio to the table. He does his best work against the cage, whether it be his knees, his ability to get underhooks or, you know, trip the guys down on the cage and get them down to the mat in his world. On the other side is Vince Koshera, who, you know, took his short notice debut against Jamal Emmers, pretty much got his ass whooped from bell to bell making him now one in three in his last four fights. And, you know, in my opinion, that's the only reason you're getting another shot because I don't really see him as really UFC competent or UFC level. He did have seven of his 10, you know, pro fights in LFA, which is a, you know, an organization that I'm high of, but he's primarily a striker, man. If I think, if I think if Ronnie can get this, you know, in the clinch realm and get those double underhooks, I think he's going to have an easy time getting it to the mat. And um, I think Ronnie is might be a good play on Saturday. I couldn't agree more. I think Ronnie Lawrence, this is a matchup perfect for him. You know, as a as a guy who I saw in the Jose Johnson fight coming into that as an underdog, um, you know, we talked about it at 5'8", 135. You kind of expect him to look big in there, mm-hmm. but Lawrence really did look undersized in that octagon. And so I'm curious to see how he matches up weigh-in days against Kachera. Mm-hmm. I think stylistically, this is a really great matchup for Lawrence considering Kachera's lack of takedown defense. As you mentioned, Lawrence, you know, he 
looks to looks to implement that wrestling heavy attack and look for those double under to double under hooks to get that body lock and mm-hmm. to secure the takedown. And that's something that I think he'll have real success with against Kachera here. Kachera, you know, six and zero in LFA at one point, then suffers that KO loss to Casey Kenny, who's now the favorite over Dominic Cruz. Right. You know, it's not a not something that you look down on at all. But at this point, he's one and three in his last four, and you got to ask yourself where he is mentally right now. Um, even in that one win that he had against Marvin Garcia, I watched that fight. Garcia took him down with ease and controlled him for the first part of that first round until he immediately gassed. It was a, an odd showing for Garcia and a, a kind of a sad one cardio wise. I think Vince Cachera, he has a lot of holes in his game, similarly to Martin Day, uh, just a, a Hawaiian that lacks uh, the edge in any realm of MMA. Mm-hmm. And I uh, just don't see it panning out for him in the UFC. I think Ronnie Lawrence might not be, uh, you know, that higher caliber of UFC talent, but I do think that this is a fight that is winnable for him in the UFC. And at minus 160, if I can find some way to play him, maybe uh, maybe parlay him somehow, that's probably what I'll do. Yeah, I know we're on the fence about one to lay that kind of price on a debut and, uh, you know, someone there and Ronnie Lawrence, but we both do agree pretty good spot for him to get uh, get the win and hoping we can find a place to play him on Saturday. One other thing I'd like to add is Kachera, he's just not, uh, he also kind of lacks that size and strength and mm-hmm. he is a very uh, pressure forward fighter, which makes it really easy to time a takedown against him. And that's where, like I said, Ronnie Lawrence will have that uh, advantage in the grappling realm and will probably get this in a decision victory. Yeah, man, I'm with you on the decision side. Vince is a hard guy to finish. We saw Jamal Emmers tear him up in the clinch exactly. you know, and it took Casey Kenny a night knee the clinch to the face to put him away mm-hmm. he's a tough dude man and uh ronnie doesn't really pack that power in his punches i agree probably grinds himself to a decision win i like it moving on we go back to the men's light heavyweight division where we see alonzo minifield who's nine and two take on william knight who's nine and one you know minifield in 2019 was thought to be you know the next best thing coming off the two first round finishes over vinicius Morea, who at the time we thought was decent and uh, the bear jew paul craig uh, now he's on this two fight skid and coming off his first ko loss of his career and you're really questioning just where he's at in this division you know in his first loss it was to devin clark who notoriously for notorious for being a little undersized at light heavyweight and uh, he just outworked Alonzo it was able to avoid that early power and uh, ended up getting the the decision win and then he goes to the OSP and he looks undersized in the octagon OSP is one of those bigger light heavyweights and truly made him look small for the first time in Minifield's career um you know with on night side at five foot ten he's also another guy who almost strictly relies on his strength. You know, he's a strength over technique guy, but an absolute unit of a man. So he's been able to get away with it up until this point in his career. Um, That being said, he doesn't have much technique. You know, we see he has a tendency whenever they're exchanging punches to lift his chin. He doesn't have great takedown defense. He kind of has that Derek Lewis mentality Mm -hmm. when it comes to getting up off the ground, just kind of use that fuck you strength to get up and, uh, He's paid for it a couple times, especially even uh, in this Brundage fight on the Contender Series. Almost got outclassed and finished in the first round, but ended up uh, getting the ability to land that power, which is a one-shot type of power. Knight really does pack a punch in that five foot ten frame at one hundred or two hundred and five pounds. 
And um, as far as this one being a coin flip, I'm going to lean towards the night side, but uh, just because no real reasoning behind it. Yeah, this one's our challenge of the night. And, you know, line perfectly at a minus 110 pick them on the side. You talked about Minifield in 2019 because, man, you know, it was looking like one of the most promising prospects the UFC had. And now he finds himself on that two-fight losing streak. You know, he was, you know, seconds away from finishing Devin Clark. He made that eye swell up really bad, and that's the one where Devin Clark's dad was screaming at him the entire fight. You could just hear it through the TV, and there was there was no quitting in Devin Clark that night. But you're talking about the OSP fight, man. He got the vet lesson in that one, and the the sheer size that OSP had was very concerning for Alonzo moving forward. He does train out of Fortis MMA, where I expect huge improvements between fights. But at 33, you know, there's not a whole lot of time left to make these improvements. If there's a time, you know, it's got to be now for Alonzo. This guy has a great foundation to build on in MMA. He's an unreal athlete that has crazy knockout power. In his nine wins, he's finished every single one of those. And he really just looks to walk you down against the cage, um, you know, and just start unleashing combos because if any of those land, you're going to sleep. Mm-hmm. But that's about all you get with Alonzo, man. And with that style, you know, his cardio really is a, you know, a problem for him. That big energy, big power style, it takes a lot out of him. And, like, again, he's short for the division. But luckily, you know, happened to get a guy here who's even shorter in the division and Knight stands at 5'10". You got to think that, like, Minifield in his last one, if Knight gets through Minifield here, you know, that problem, that size is going to become an issue for him going forward as well. He'll probably end up getting a lesson similar to Minifield where he fights somebody with that length like OSP mm-hmm. and it'll uh, give him problems, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, the Cody Brundage, the Alexa Cameron, you know, he did look good, man. Yeah, he had his moments where he was able to, you know, straight overpower those guys with his, uh, you know, with his strength. And there's a couple names to note on the regional scene, like Jorgen DeCastro and Samuelsberger and then, you know, Nchukwe, who's had all, you know, I think every single one of those guys have now got UFC wins. So something to note for him here that he's, you know, not fought any slouches on the regional scene by no means. But I do like that he doesn't rely on that KO power as much as Alonzo does in his Instagram post about being in what he thinks to be the best shape of his life. It does worry me here in our challenge, but – I do think that Alonzo was one guy that'll be able to match him strength for strength and William might not be able to get away with that advantage that he has here. I think it's a perfectly aligned fight in terms of betting. I don't even know if I'm going to make a personal play on it. I just like that we got a challenge on such a close fight. Yeah, hundred percent. I imagine that this fights under is lined at one and a half. We mm-hmm. haven't looked at those lines yet, but um, I, I'm be. assuming that this one's going to be not going to be seeing the judges. I don't think you'll see the judges either, but probably aligned at one and a half. I don't know how much value there'll be there. Right. Just taking a step down, we go to Alexis Davis, who's 19 and 10, taking on Sabina Mazo, who's nine and one. Um, and this one's taking place in the 135 to pound division. You know, something new for Sabina Mazo, who is typically a 125er. But, um, you know, her size for 125 is going to translate just as well to 135. Alexis Davis is coming off a really long layoff, July of 2019. To put it in perspective for you, that's the last time that Holloway was uh, whooping up on Edgar. So it has been, you know, quite some time. But she's fought girls like Sarah Kaufman, Valerie Retorno, you know, Tanya Evinger a decade ago. She comes from Strike Force, the ultimate fighter. But at this point in her career at 36, she's kind of become that stepping stone for girls on their way to the belt, like Chukagian, like Maya, and then, you know, the new recent newcomer in Vivian Arujo. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of obvious what the UFC is trying to do here as well and giving her a girl that they're, you know, really high on is Sabina Mazo. Sabina Mazo, 
she got, you know, I dumped in the notice that high kick that she loves to use. You know, she's finished multiple fights with it. That's what led to the finish of Justine Kish. But she's one of those girls that, you know, if you want success with her, you're going to have to push her up against the fence and take those weapons away from her, much like my girl Marina Moroz did. And if you don't follow that on Instagram, that's a good one to follow. But, man, this is kind of like a dogger pass situation where I think the UFC is setting Sabina Mazo up to get a win. Um, what do you see in this fight? Yeah, so Alexis Davis, or Alexis Davis at 36 years old, I really do think that her best days are behind mm-hmm. her. Um, she is on that three-fight losing streak, but – in those three fights, she's not getting dominated in mm-hmm. any of those. I'm, I'm pretty sure she won rounds in almost all of those. Um, so that is something to note, that she's at least remaining competitive. She is 3-5 and five in her last eight bouts, but like you touched on, a lot of those losses are to high-class, high like upper-echelon girls, mm-hmm. and really nobody to look down upon. You talked about, you know, she's beaten the likes of Tanya, Tanya Evinger twice, Liz Carmouche twice, the, the Lioness Amanda Nunez. Mm-hmm. Um, really notable wins, and you got to know that she still has the potential to be one of those upper echelon 135 women girls, but at 36 years old, you just gotta, you just gotta ask yourself if she's still got it. Mm-hmm. Where Sabina Maza at only 23 years old, she's really shown flashes of being a really high caliber UFC fighter. And, um, you know, similarly to Chukagian, she can use that long rangey jab and utilize that footwork to kind of get the decision wins. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really a fight that I look at, uh, this fight kind of mirroring uh, Davis, you know, she had problems kind of following Chukagian around the cage. Um, and I, I really do see Sabina Mazo having, having similar success in there. Um, you know, Mazo, like you said, coming from LFA, she, she throws a lot of strikes. She keeps you guessing in there. She's averaging over 7.4 strikes per minute. And I really do think that it could overwhelm Davis and she'll have some trouble finding the ways to get inside that range of Mazo. Yeah, these girls, uh, two different points in their career right now. I think you've got Alexis Davis is on that three-fight losing streak and a layoff where Sabina Mazo's looking to stay active at 23, taking whatever fight she can, already riding the three-fight winning streak. At King's MMA, you just expect huge improvements at such a young age for a girl. Now, that being said, with as profitable as big female underdogs were in 2020, um, I highly doubt there's going to be a play on this end from us. So, you know, we talk about how being 23 and the younger fighter is uh, advantageous. Well, there are some fallbacks Mm -hmm. to it as well. Alexis Davis could utilize that experience to capitalize on some problems in Mazo's games early. And we've seen in the past, like with Jojo Calderwood wanting Mm -hmm. to stay active, especially in the women's division, it not play out for him in the right way. So there are some, um, you know, downfalls in backing Mazo here, which is probably why we're going to end up staying away from this one. Absolutely, man. Moving on, we go to our prelim main event and also our our second challenge of the day. We're actually going to make a challenge on these next two fights uh, to try and make up for the last three weeks. But we have Alexander Hernandez, who's 12 and three, taking on Tiago Moises, who's 14 and four. Uh, Alexander Hernandez, he's two and two in his last four. And he's one of those guys where you think that he has all the potential in the world, but it just isn't panning out. I kind of I like to compare him to. Kevin Lee in that right where you just he has everything he has everything to where he should be an excellent mm-hmm. fighter um, just just not not working out like how it should in his last bout he took on Chris Grutzmacher and to be honest with you putting a whooping on Chris Grutzmacher <laughs> doesn't hold much value in my eyes if if uh, the goat Artem Lubov can do it then I think that you should be able to do it as well um Hernandez, a national level level wrestler at the high school level, uh, really really utilizes that in his MMA game as well. 
carrying that much muscle at 155 though it does tend to work it uh, not in his advantage and we see him gas out uh, a lot of the time whenever it comes to him having to try and use that that wrestling style attack uh, in the Drew Dober fight specifically, you know, he, he got touched up a few times and, and was able to land the takedown against Drew Dober. But um, as we saw in the second round, was was breathing heavy. I think I marked down that at the four-minute mark of the first round, he, you saw him mouth breathing. And that's, uh, that's something that really worries me. On the Moises side, young fighter, and at 25 years old, he's constantly making mm-hmm. these improvements. You know, I, I look at somebody in Moises who always has the – uh, ground game and the Brazilian jiu-jitsu credentials to fall back on and at this point in his career he's constantly making those striking improvements like we saw in that green fight where he's slipping punches and countering over top with overhand rights um, and really way more busy where we've seen in the past you know his output kind of being one of the biggest problems with him and him losing those decisions um, I, I really think that Moises's ceiling is higher than Hernandez here. And at plus 160, I really like having him as a dog. Um, that'll be my play. Um, although I don't think that's how we're going to play this fight. Yeah, man, we are uh, not seeing eye to eye on this one as we're going to go ahead and throw this in the challenge book for the week. But I think we can agree that we are both pumped for this one because this is going to be a fun fight. Hernandez's UFC career, you know, just like Thiago Moses, it started off with Benil de Rouge. But when you get a highlight real KO like that, there's no easy fights going forward for Alex Hernandez. It then has started getting guys like, you know, Donald Cerrone, who were giving him the vet lesson, someone he was not ready to fight. Um, and then in Drew Dober, which now fighting Islam Makashev next week, you know, doesn't look like too bad of a loss on that record anymore. Uh, but one thing to do note about Alexander Hernandez and – I do see the Kevin Lee comparison, and I know there's not much that you can read into the Kruzgritzmacher, but he has made the move to factory Muay Thai, where he was at his home gym, where he was everything they had, nobody to work with, you know. And now he's made a move to factory Muay Thai that's out in Denver, where I'm hoping can fix cardio issues on a guy like that. He's got, you know, a good young athletic frame and a great body kick, and I think he's going to have a massive stand-up advantage in, in this fight but he does average about eight minute fight time. And it's evident with, you know, his ability to get it done early or, or gas himself out with that. Um, and, you know, opponents start to take over late. Moises, that's a tested 25 year old coming in there as well. You know, on the regional scene, he fought guys like Jason Knight, defended his belt in RFA with the win over Jamal Emmers. You know, has already fought Benel Dayrouche. And it's nothing new for MMA math to not add up there as Jamal Emmers has beaten Alex Hernandez and then, you know, he's also lost Benel de Rouge, exact opposite Hernandez, who, you know, went out there and dusted Benel de Rouge. So nothing new for that to add up. And it makes this fight a, a super close fight and one that should be a lot closer, closerly lined than what it is for sure. Moises' strength, without a doubt, it does rely on, you know, in the, in the ground realm of this. And I'm curious to see how it's going to play out because Alexander Hernandez, he does have underrated ground game. But we do see him fade late, and I really do think Moises has the type of power, um, or I'm sorry, the type of pressure that he can put on him, so like Drew Dober did, and calls that to fail. Now, since we're, you know, since we're divided on this, I think we actually like the under two and a half. It was a plus 140 yesterday. Now it's sitting at a plus 160. So we're, you know, we're hesitant if we're going to wait to play that. But at one plus 160, I think we both see ways guys can get this finished, and I think we're going to go ahead and hop on that line. Yeah, Moises, he sits down on his punches, and Hernandez throws very powerful kicks and power in all of his shots. Mm-hmm. We really do think that 
uh, both guys, they're, they're somewhat hittable and they offer enough power to really get this done. Not to mention the grappling threat with Moises. If he does decide to Imanari role like he did in the Michael Johnson fight, yeah. uh, we could see a quick tap as well, especially if Hernandez starts to, to gas in those later rounds and doesn't have the energy to ward off those sub attempts. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think this has real potential to see the under here, especially in the small octagon with these two. That's a fight that I like to play the under on for sure. I like that. We move on to the main card, or kicking us off with Alex Caceres, who's 17 and two, taking on Kevin Kroom, who's 21 and 12, and maybe the best nicknames ever. And we got Bruce Leroy taking on the hard hitting hillbilly. And that is something with Kevin Kroom that, man, um, that's fan friendly and something he needs to run with. You know, I, I did not know that was his nickname before looking that up. Bruce, uh, Bruce Leroy there and Alex Caceres is a guy that's been in the UFC for quite some time now. And after not being able to string, you know, multiple wins in a row together, he's now found himself on a three-fight win streak. I don't want to knock it too much because, I mean, he is beating guys like Chase Hooper. I don't know how much he should be in the UFC. We saw Peter Barrett just, you know, take him to school until he basically a Minari rolled himself and caught some type of knee bar. And then the Austin Springer, who, we, you know, it was on a day notice, Caceres has found himself as almost as, I wouldn't say journeyman, but been that test for prospects to see if they can get over that hump. And he's kind of held that 50-50 record in the UFC. And he's fighting a guy in Kevin Groom who's actually, you know, more experienced than he's in. And that's something that he's not used to seeing very, uh, you know, lately. I texted you earlier in the week, and, man, it really seems like the public has, has agreed on me that Kevin Kroom is, is a live dog here. It's hard for me to just justify anybody being that big of an underdog against Caceres especially when they have the type of pressure and submission threat that Kevin Kroom does where Alex has lost seven times by sub. This is a close fight, um, and I don't mind taking the dog here for our challenge. Yeah, so for me, I just look at Kroom, and I look at a guy who's 7-7-1 seven, seven, and one in his last 15 fights on the regional scene. Um, just not enough for me to, to back him against somebody. And Alex Caceres, who's a 23-fight UFC veteran who, like you said, is on that three-fight win streak and is really coming into his own at the age of 32, which is really the perfect time to be stringing those things together in MMA. Because um, Sarah's, you know, he's extremely good at distance management. And unless you're an elite striker like Yair Rodriguez, mm-hmm. uh, he will touch you up on the feet. And, um, uh, you know, unless another guy like Kron Gracie, who offers that, you know, grappling-heavy attack, like it's a problem if he gets you to the ground – I just don't see that in Kroom. Kroom does have 10 wins by submission, and that's where Caceres has struggled in the past. I just don't think that Kroom has the um, the grappling – one, the grappling ability to get Caceres to the ground and get his hands on him, and then two, the ability to, to submit Caceres, who has eight submission wins of his own. Um, Kroom has been finished five times since 2015, and Caceres, you know, coming into his own right now, uh, coming off that that finish over Austin Springer, I really do think that the inside the distance line for Caceres at plus 370 is live right now, but um, I'm more than comfortable taking Caceres straight up in this challenge. Yeah, man, um, this is this is a tough fight here, and I think we had talked about the under 2.5 sitting at plus 170 here is likely, you know, something to play as. I can see Alex Caceres touching him up on the feet and getting that TKO win, and I can also see Kevin Kroon getting him on the ground and just being the bigger of the two and, you know, and getting that submission win. Um, 
it's a close fight, bro. And you know, we got to pick them on the challenge. Now you've got a dog and I've got a dog. I'm excited for this one. Yeah. hundred percent. And we might, we might also play the uh, extra or lose the extra 15 points and take the, the extra two and a half minutes for fight. Mm-hmm. Doesn't go to decision at plus plus one fifty five as well. Yeah. That's something I, I wouldn't mind taking the extra 15 points and adding us a little extra time as I think uh, Kevin Croom's biggest knock for me is going to be that cardio. I could see Caceres getting that finish late on the feet. I like it. Moving on, we go to the women's strawweight division where we see Angela Overkill Hill, who's 12 and 9, take on the spider monkey, Ashley Yoder. Uh, Angela Hill, you know, I really don't, she doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth. You know, she's known for complaining about dropping these close decision losses, which in my eyes are her fault. There were uh, obvious points in those fights where she could have done more to win the, over those rounds and she just chose not to. Um, that, that being said, at 12 and 9, I don't think that that record's an accurate reflection of her skill set. She is a whole lot better than that record would, would make you believe. Um, as one of the most active fighters currently on the roster, she's been able to make some massive improvements each time she makes an appearance. But at 36 years old, you really got to start asking yourself, when is that decline coming? You know, as far as I'm concerned, especially in the lower weight classes, once you hit that 34, 35 mark, mm-hmm. the decline's right, right behind you. It's, right. You know, it's, uh, it's on its way. And then you move on to Ashley Yoder. You know, five, three and five in the UFC – and their last time out against Miranda Granger, kind of surprising. Uh, she she utilized some grappling to get that victory. Uh, I thought that that was somewhat impressive and, and nice to see uh, Ashley Yoder kind of round out her round out her game like that. I know she has four wins by submission, and uh, with six losses having never been finished, that is something to note, especially in a fight where Angela Hill, I gotta imagine, is wanting a finish here. Mm-hmm. Um, Yoder. I think is a live dog. You know, it's the biggest mover of the card. She opened as a plus 150 and is now a plus 285. If you're not going to play her straight, I think the decision profit plus 415 is the way you have to go. Um, definitely the not some not a rematch that anybody was asking for, but it is one that we're getting. Absolutely, dude. Uh, I don't agree with the uh, with the odds sitting at where they're at now. Maybe opening odds, but at this point, it's getting out of hand, and I'm very tempted to play Ashley Yoder at this point. It is, like you said, a rematch from 2017 where Hill did take the first one via unanimous decision, um, but it was a lot closer. And, you know, Ashley Yoder had three or four takedowns in that fight that made it a little close as well. Hill is um, – she's coming off back-to-back losses to Michelle Waterson and Claudia Gadelia, both, you know, upper echelon fighters of her division where she proved to me where, you know, that's kind of her uh, position in the division. You know, she's not going to beat those top girls. She has a she has some holes in her game where they're able to, to take her down. Those Both those fights, you know, they're very close, and she can argue all she wants. You know, I think she lost both of them. She does have good volume. Um, she's very athletic, and she has good movement on the feet, looking to land that right hand. She actually set Claudia Gadelia down with it. Um, but the wrestling, I think, is her is her you know biggest streak, or I'm sorry, her biggest weakness, and something Ashley can exploit. She does train out of Team Quest, and you're right that uh, that win over against Miranda Granger, who was a very highly touted prospect in that division, was something you know that impressed me as well. And she really did round out her game and and show us all assets or aspects of her game that she has. Going back and you know watching this fight and seeing it again, it it really shocked me to see the size advantage that Ashley Yoder's going to have in this one. Um, and I think both girls have made a ton of improvements in her game. She's got sneaky submissions off her back. You know, she tends to leave fights close herself and, you know, be on the losing end of some split decisions, her, you know, as well. 
it's a late edition fight, one I'm not too interested in, but man, that decision at plus 415, they're both decision machines, and we've seen Angela Hill be on the, you know, the losing side of a couple and stuff, so I almost don't mind taking a stab at that with the, with the size advantage and wrestling ability she has. Yeah, I could really see this fight going similarly to Chukagian versus Cynthia Calveo, mm-hmm. where we saw an aggressive attack style in Calveo and, and Chukagian just able to kind of outclass her with footwork and length. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, I thought of that on the fly, but I really yeah. do think that that's some, a fight that you could draw so a lot of comparisons here. Although I'm not saying that Yoder's on Chukagian's level, mm-hmm. uh, I do see some comparisons in how they like to uh, implement their game plan. And so I really do think Ashley's a live dog, like you said. Um, if we don't end up playing Yoder, we're probably just going to stay away from this one. Yeah, and I know we're on the fence as if we're going to bet her at plus 14, 415 in the decision or if we just take the plus 285 and ride that as well. As mm-hmm. we know, we, we took the big stab on Yana inside the distance and at a plus two-something dog, probably should have just bet her straight up there. So maybe learn from a mistake, um, something we're on the fence and we're going to talk about this week. 100%. In our men's bantamweight division is another rematch. We have Pedro Munoz, who is 18-5, and five, taking on Jimmy Rivera, who's 23-4. and four. And Jimmy Rivera is currently sitting at a minus-150 favorite where he opened at, and the line hasn't moved much. But the last time he did open as a minus-125, where the public was kind of all over him, you know, and the bookies aren't stupid realigning this fight come, uh, you know, come in the rescheduling from two weeks ago. In that previous rematch, you know, we saw Rivera just be the better boxer, get the, you know, the better of most of those exchanges. And it resembles our play on Benny uh, versus, you know, Carlos Diego Ferreira's. Mm-hmm. If you can get good odds on a guy, the winner usually takes a rematch in over 62% of the time and, and something we might look at playing. On Pedro Munoz, I'm on the fence about his, you know, his last uh, fight against Frankie Edgar. You know, he, it was close, maybe not a robbery, but he, he did spend a lot of time chasing and kind of like the Jimmy Rivera fight. Spent a lot of time chasing and, and didn't get the better of the exchanges on the feet. That does right put him on a two-fight losing streak, and I think that you know that age at 34 is kind of starting to show a little bit. I think he's losing some of that speed and that uh, mobility. He's becoming quite a bit of a stationary target at this now at this time in his career, and not something you want to be. You know, at bantamweight at 135, where speed kills. And on Jimmy Rivera's side, dude's been fighting the top of the division since entering the UFC. I know he's fought Yawn and Sterling, Marais, you know, just the top guys of the division. He is primarily a striker. He's got underrated wrestling, but he doesn't mix it up, I guess you could say, as Munoz uh, does. I think he, again, man, just gets the better on the feet throughout the whole fight. Yeah, so even though their last fight was six years ago, I really do think that that's still the best tool that you could use to determine the outcome of this fight. And in my head, if Jimmy Rivera can outlast Munoz at 25 years old, I, I think at the prime of his MMA mm-hmm. career at 31 years old that he's going to have yeah. a lot of su- the same success here. Um, in that first matchup, Munoz did tag him a few times and really have him in some bad spots. And uh, that's not something I'm too worried about with Rivera. Since that Mariah's head kick, Rivera's chin's really held up mm-hmm. since then, and he's taken some big shots facing Peter Yan and Aljo. Uh, so as, as far as my concern with his chin, it's not something that I'm worried about. Uh, Munoz, obviously known for his leg kicks. I'm, I'm assuming that that's something that he'd like to establish yeah. early here with Rivera, um, but not something that I imagine Rivera letting him have. Uh, I imagine that he would like to get inside or, or be far enough away to where Munoz can't get those calf mm-hmm. kicks. Um, Munoz, he does have six guillotine finishes. And with the amount of times that I can imagine Rivera trying to get this to the ground, that is something I can look for Munoz to try and exploit. 
Um, although Rivera's been been good at avoiding any submission losses on his record, uh, that is a, a play that I could see Munoz trying to to capitalize on, knowing how grappling heavy Rivera's attack is. Yeah, and that that guillotine is actually something that he did, you know, threaten Rivera with in their first fight. He he had him in a couple positions, but he ended up on bottom. You know, Rivera was was able to come out of it, end up right there on top control and stuff. I think Jimmy Rivera, man, at 31 is just a little bit better everywhere this fight's going to go. He's got a nice uppercut, good jab, and he works his, you know, he works his um, strikes to the body with his kicks, with his uppercuts, and that's something that um, I think he'll need to work again with Pedro here. Is I, I think Pedro has a little bit of the cardio edge as he doesn't carry as much muscle as Jimmy Rivera does. It worries me as it gets late, man, but, um, man, I, I really like to bet uh, Jimmy Rivera on Saturday, winter, 62% of the time in the rematch. Yeah, I think the making is there for Jimmy Rivera to beat this guy again. Not that it means much, but to add some MMA math reassurance, they have a common opponent in John Dodson yeah. where we saw Munoz lose a split decision and Rivera get the decision, the unanimous decision win. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you needed any more reason to kind of lean towards Rivera, there's another one. Absolutely, man. Moving on, we go to the women's flyweight division where we see Montana De La Rosa, who's 11-6, and six, take on – Myra Buena Silva, who's seven and one. Montana De La Rosa, young UFC fighter who's gone four and two in her first six with the organization. Uh, as with most young fighters, you know, we see those significant improvements mm-hmm. each time she steps in the cage, um, especially in that last time out against Arusha. We really saw her implement that uh, jab and improve her striking game all around, um, which was really impressive to me. Although she didn't come out on top with that. Um, it did show me that she's she's still developing her game. At only 26 years old, I'm not too worried about right. her uh, at this point in her career. She's at one of the best teams right now in the in the world at Team Elevation, and um, is is consistent with the Team Elevation method of takedowns. She's averaging over two takedowns per 15 minutes, and I can't expect her to change that up here against Bueno Silva. Bueno Silva almost non-existent takedown defense Um, just running through her UFC fights you know the Jillian Robertson fight she got the win in round one but she spent two and a half minutes on her back then the Myrna Moreau's fight uh, she ended up losing that fight and spent over four minutes on her back in that fight as well then the Barella fight another first round finish win for Bueno Silva um, but spent almost another two minutes on her back in that fight um, Montana De La Rosa with her nine wins by submission and her grappling uh, experience, I really do think that she's going to be able to uh, sit in the guard of Bueno Silva and really just ride this one out to a uh, decision win. One of my favorite plays of the night is on De La Rosa straight up, but man, if I could get anything better than plus 170 mm-hmm. for De La Rosa decision, that's how I would have played this. Um, but the odds makers know. I think that uh, De La Rosa at dog odds right here is is perfect. Absolutely, man. This is one that we've already released via Twitter for you guys as an underdog play on De La Rosa. I think a unit there, there's a ton of value on her. And like you said, I wish that prop for decision was just a little bit more enticing for us because that's the way she gets this fight done. She is the lone uh, De La Rosa left in the UFC after her husband has been cut by the organization. And she's coming off that loss to Vivian Arujo where I saw improvements. Um, you know, she did get she did get beat up on the feet bad, but but Vivian is looking like the next big prospect at, at 125, and we saw her just go out there and dismantle Roxanne Montefiore for 15 minutes. So you can't knock De La Rosa for you know being a little uh, a little off taking that fight on short notice. She's gonna have a massive stand up advantage in this fight and the wrestling advantage, man. Buena Silva, I, I do see as a prospect a lot of people are high on. She trains out of that Shoe Brox Brazil. 
um, where she, she kind of sub hunts from her back, like you said, and on, on the feet, she doesn't impress me. Yes, she throws a super hard calf kick, and she slings that right hand at you. But, man, does she drop her hands low? She does not move her head whatsoever. She is just as there to be hit, as, you know, as she is. But, dude, the, the laying on the bottom, it's going to get you in trouble. I know she's just seemed to make a living off of it in her, like, three round one finishes lately. But with a girl like Montana De La Rosa, who has the wrestling advantage, who is going to be the bigger girl here in this fight, is going to have the cardio edge. And a girl who's only been submitted by fucking Mackenzie Dern. Moeno Silva is not going to be able to submit this girl from her guard. Montana De La Rosa is very, very well-rounded. Silva's had her double knee surgery, already had a two-year layoff. Man, I love the dog play on De La Rosa, and I wish we could get that decision just a little bit better because she's a decision machine and probably just going to ride this out and guard. Yeah, so you, you touched on Bueno Silva's low leg kick. She really will. I, I think that the De La Rosa, her biggest problem in this fight is that her lead leg will probably mm-hmm. end up getting eaten up. Um, and then De La Rosa, she also, although Silva has similar issues, De La Rosa drops her lead left hand mm-hmm. and it left her exposed to a couple of overhand rights in the Marabarella fight. Um, that's somewhere where, like you said, Bueno Silva, she slings those right hands, mm-hmm. comes right down the pike, uh, similarly to Davison Figueredo, mm-hmm. um, just searching for that finishing punch. Um, but you're right, you know, Bueno Silva it doesn't impress me the way that she's been winning these fights unless you have the looks of Pollyanna Vienna getting submissions <laughs> off your back. Isn't going to impress me. So um, love the De La Rosa play here. I'm, I'm excited about it. Absolutely, man. I think she's a much well-rounded fighter and a dog odds. I can't help myself either. Love it. Moving on to our co-main event of the evening. This is the most anticipated fight on the card for me. I'm pumped for this one. You've got Nikita Krylov, who's 27 and seven taking on Magomed Ankalov, who is 14 and one. Nikita Krylov, this is his second stint in the UFC. The first one, you know, started actually out at heavyweight where he went one and one, beating guys like Walt Harris, then drops down to light heavyweight where he goes five and two, and then has some contract issues with the UFC. So he steps aside, takes some better money back home, fighting, I think, on fight nights global. But, man, when you're that good, the competitive edge of being in the UFC is always going to be there. He is back in the UFC here. He re, uh, you know, he revenged with that loss to OSP that he had in his previous run, but he's lost his top two to um, his last two to probably the top two contenders in the division with Jones out right now and Jan Blockowitz and you know Glover Teixeira who probably deserves that shot more than Izzy does at the belt right now. But I will say, man, this line it is wide, um, but because th- this is a step up in competition for Ankalov compared to you know to Dalcha to um, um, Abreu to Paul Craig. It's definitely a step up in, ter- mm-hmm. in terms of competition. Even Kutilaba. And even Kutilaba. And a step down from Krelov, from Jan Blakowicz and uh, Glover Teixeira. Mm-hmm. Maybe even Johnny Walker. So the line, it is a bit wide here. Nikita Krelov, he's got good elbows and a great tie clinch. And he has a lot more volume than Magomed does. But Magomed is a deadly counterpuncher. And he's going to have a ton of things to counter here. You know, I think this is the brightest prospect at light heavyweight. Um, I know you and I, without a doubt, think this guy's going to be the champ one day. Um, it, 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 he's one of the most dangerous Russians on this roster that the UFC has, and in my opinion, probably puts his game together. Um, he's more well-rounded than a lot of these other Russians. There's not something that he's just, you know, 
so good at that his stand-up is lacking because this guy's a is a terror on the feet as well. And I think I see a lot of passive victory for Magomed, whether it be on the feet or on the mat. How do you see this one? Yeah, Magomed, the master of uh, sport and combat sambo given to him by Fedor Emelianenko. Like you said, you know, we're going to look to see Ankulayev holding gold sooner rather than mm-hmm. later. Um, technically sound pretty much everywhere and also extremely explosive, kind of making him his finishing ability highlight central. And it's just a, a matter of time before he gets another highlight reel like he has in the Kutalaba fight or the uh, Dolce Lugiambula yeah. fight. Um, kind of annoying. Ankyulayev spent almost all of 2020 waiting to get the rematch with Kutalaba and it ended up going almost exactly how it did the first time. Um, Krylov, you know, my biggest knock on him, first off, I'd, I'd like to say he has relentless takedown pressure, and he really does try to utilize that grappling-heavy attack to to get his to, to work his game. But um, similarly to Ryan Spann, Krylov has that problem with hanging out against the cage, trying to get that takedown and leaving the side of his head exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Ankulayev has the length to rain down those elbows whenever he's just hanging out there. But I don't think Ankalaev's going to give him the opportunity to just waste time holding him up against the cage. Um, I, I, I don't know if you mentioned the stat, but both of these guys don't see the judges very often. And we ended up playing this fight doesn't go to the mm-hmm. go-to decision at minus 185. And um, I really do think that Krylov's going to end up going for broke here. He knows what he has to do at this point in his career. And uh, Ankalaev's not somebody that you can take a – the you know, the foot off the gas at all with. So I expect this one not to see the judges at all. And I really like our play here. Yeah, man, I don't expect this one to see the judges at all. As we saw in Goliath tap with one second left to Paul Craig as maybe the fight IQ is not there. Um, I don't know. I like to give him a pass because it's his debut. But Nikita Krylov has seen the round, has seen the third round, I think five times we counted in his 34 fights where Magomed has, you know, finished a ton of his fights as well. Mm-hmm. I think we put two units on this one, not going the distance at minus 185. So one of our bigger plays for me personally, I am going to be parlaying Ankoliev. I, I think this is the most legit contender in the light heavyweight division right now. Um, you know, I don't want to jump the gun, but I, I do think he is in the, the Jan Blockowitz, the Glover to share range. I think he's got the tools to be able to beat Krylov everywhere. And we saw Krylov get – I wouldn't say get hit, but, man, he was inches from getting hit with Glover's left hook, I mean, countless, countless times. And we've seen Ankoliev make a living off that left hook, um, putting Kutilaba down with it, I think, twice. And – Left no questions asked there. This is this is a good fight, man. Um, I'm pumped for this co-main event. The sky's the limit for both these guys. They, um, Magomed has not fought the um, you know the competition that Kralov has fought, and I think that's my one knock on Ankalaev. But the, you know, ever so often there's going to be that guy that comes along where you know you know when you see it, he's doing everything he's supposed to do to these guys, um, and the UFC is just kind of paving his way to the belt for him. Uh, Magomed Ankalaev is part of that Russian wave. Yeah. You know, we see it with Zabit, all the right tools. He's technically sound everywhere. We see it with uh, Islam Makhachev. Yeah. If you know another one, where it's just he's technically sound everywhere. And unless you've got some uh, superb. Uh, you know, technique like Steven Wonderboy, who's the best striker in the world, unless you're, you're going to best them in, in one area mm-hmm. and that's your path to victory. I don't see you uh, outclassing Ankalaev anytime soon. I'm with you, brother. In our heavyweight main event, we have Biggie Boy Jorinzo Rosenstruck, who's 11 and one taking on Cyril Bongaman Gon, who's seven and oh, 
Biggie Boy, 5-1 and one in the UFC with his only loss coming to the next title challenger in Francis Ngannou, uh, which he bounced back from in spectacular fashion only three months after uh, losing yeah. by TKO, uh, beating JDS, and uh, actually getting the TKO finish himself. Um, in Rosenstruik's time in the UFC, he's, he's had a couple of really tough matchups, particularly the Alistair Overeem matchup, where I'd be lying if I didn't say Alistair kind of exposed the style of striking you need to beat somebody with the power and kickboxing credentials of Ro- Rosenstruik. Mm-hmm. That's something that I think Cyril Gaon could implement. You know, he definitely will be the lighter one of on the feet out of these two guys. And his striking, you know, it relies on the on his ability to to move in and out quickly and uh, in and out of that range by bouncing. And that's that's something that I, I think Rosenstruik having the the seventy six and six record of kickboxing could will eventually um, be able to find the timing if Gon doesn't get the finish. And that's a big if. Mm-hmm. I, I think Gon's set up to get a, uh, a a quick finish here, and that's why we're playing the under. I guess five rounds yeah. in, in this fight um, for minus 200. Rosenstruik's a little flat footed when he's striking. He does, he is uh, exceptional um, in his striking. Don't get me wrong, but uh, definitely relies on like his precision and timing mm-hmm. more than he does any type of footwork. And then there's also a big question mark surrounding Rosenstruik's ground game where we've at least gotten to see flashes of Cyril Gaon's yeah. ground game. And it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable um, picking Cyril Gaon, who seems to be at this point in his career a little bit more well-rounded. Um, all that being said, Cyril Gaon at only 7-0 and in MMA, still relatively green and, mm-hmm. and definitely has, uh, you know, hasn't seen the ins and outs of the game. So there's, there's uh, some question marks in this all around. Yeah, man. And so 7-0 and in MMA, but I think he's only got like seven or eight of the Muay Thai fights as well. Nothing compared to the 80-so fights of kickboxing that Tarzino has. Zarzino has been striking forever, man. Um, and the KO prop for him is sitting at a plus 333. It's the only way Jarzinho is getting this fight done. He's knocked down every single one of his opponents but Francis Ngannou, which is crazy to note. And shout-out to MMA by the numbers, um, getting this one from him. In the history of the heavyweight division, there's a knockdown every 32 minutes. And Jarzinho averages one every eight. So he has proven to have, you know, unreal knockout power. And he's got a great counter left hook. But you got, you know, you touch him and he is one dimensional, you know, and he is uh, a primarily a striker. But what I do like to see is that move to American top team. And that's a, that's a you know, a group and a, a team out there that will teach you to grapple um, mm-hmm. and has a lot of good heavyweights for you to work out there with as well. One thing to do, uh, I like to note about this is, these guys, you know, one's a southpaw and one's a conventional stance, and Sorogon really, really likes that left uh, kick of his. He switches levels with it great to the calf, to the body, and he really likes to throw it high, and I see that being a huge issue for Rosenstroik on Saturday night. They're both, um, I do believe, are coming off a win over Junior Dos Santos and their common opponent, where I personally thought Gon looked a whole lot better. You know, Gon uh, won the first round, eventually got the, the TKO in the second same with Rosenstroik, but Rosenstroik was a little timid. Um, I mean, he was coming off the loss to Francis. Uh, he has the reasons to be timid, but, uh, you know, he really kind of played the game at range with JDS and kind of got picked apart there as well. And Cyril Gaon is happily, you know, to, to keep this fight at range, just like he did with JDS. The entire first round, he kept the fight at range, worked the body, thousands of leg kicks, you know, and made, made um, JDS walk to him before getting the finish. And I think that's something we could see again, Cyril Gaon is, um, you know, 
maybe even higher on the list than Spivak, Aspinall, and Dahl, because he is the the prospect at heavyweight right now. And I don't know after Saturday or even right now if you can consider him a prospect getting that main event slot anymore. He trains out of the MMA factory in France, and I really hope to see him move from there um, like Francis Ngannou did. I think if he really wants to put his game together and be that top fighter that he can, I think it's going to need a move out of that gym because he's got all the athleticism and size in the world that he needs, and he works that jab so well. But the knock on him is you haven't seen his wrestling tested too. And and I think it could, you know, be a Stipe or a Curtis Blades that comes in there with that grappling heavy attack to just put gone on his butt and sit in his guard because that's probably the one area we haven't seen him tested yet. At this price tag, it, it really is hard to, to back gone in this spot with the inexperience level that he has. But I do think this fight does not start round five, and um, that's our biggest bet of the night at minus 200 of round, uh, round five not starting. Yeah, and something else that's comforting is there's a lot of unknowns in Gunn's game outside of that third round. Mm-hmm. You know, we've never seen him go into those championship rounds where we know for a fact that Rosenstruck mm-hmm. carries that power all the way into four minutes and 56 seconds right. of the fifth round. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I really do like that that we've got two heavyweights. We don't have to pay over minus 200 for the under five rounds. And um, I think both these guys are game. I don't think either one of them are going to be hesitant to throw. Um, Both of them coming off of wins. I I, I think that momentum is is in both of their favors, and they're going to be looking to carry it and get the finish here. Yeah, I think we both agree that we're going to lean towards who we're gone. But uh, I think we can also agree that the value on this fight is probably on Jarzino Rosenstroik at this big one underdog. 100%. Man, and uh, finishes our last, uh, you know, fight of the night. Third heavyweight main event in four weeks. The UFC really treating us. Um, I think only 11 or 12 fights on this card. Looking from top to bottom, is there a fight that stands out for you as your fight of the night? Yeah, my fight of the night has to be Montana De La Rosa versus Mara Bueno Silva. Um, I was just so high on De La Rosa mm-hmm. after doing tape study that it's one of those reads that you just kind of get excited about. Yeah. So um, her being an underdog right now, it would it would really mean a lot, or really yeah. mean a lot to me <laughs> to, to to get the read and it put a little bit more confidence in me being able to, to, to back somebody that I, I saw winning. For sure, man. Uh, and no, no surprise here for me. It's Ankalaev and Krylov. That fight's not seen the judges. Both these guys are so exciting on the feet, um, exciting on the mat as well. And they hardly ever see the judges scorecards. If I had to pick a fighter throughout this whole card for me, um, it's an easy pick of my boy, Alexander Hernandez. This guy's moved to factory X Muay Thai. I know the last fight was a layup, but I expect huge improvements at 28 years old. Um, and he's gonna, he's in a good position against a, you know, a game fighter where I think he, um, you know, is poised to show a stand up again. Nice. Mine's going to be Alex Caceres, you know, at 32 years old, I do think he's finally starting to put mm-hmm. those tools together and riding that three fight win streak. Uh, I'd like to see him back up the minus two ten favorite spot that he's in right now against somebody like Kevin Kroon. Absolutely, man. That's a good one to pick. If you are still with us here, quit being an ass, like the video, subscribe to the channel. It helps us out a whole bunch, man. And we're looking to, um, you know, to pick up from last week. Massive upset ruined our night. But, um, you know, no sweat. We stick to our guns and we're going to get back to it. Yes, sir. Peace.